This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week, Matthew Stadlin learns lessons in leadership from L. David Marquet, the former US submarine captain whose innovative management techniques turned around the USS Santa Fe from the worst to the best performing sub in the fleet. His new book on the subject, Leadership is Language, is out now. David, I'm going to start by asking you why your name is L. David Marquet. Why the L? I think you do things differently in America when it comes to names. How important is the dot after the L? Well, it's because my parents were mean to me, and my, my father was Louis Carl, so they named their first son Louis David, but they called me David. So when I went to kindergarten and they they uh, announced Louis Marquette, because they pronounced Marquet incorrectly as well, I sat with my arms crossed for five minutes, and they were confused about who, who I was uh, in the class. But it stands for Louis. And the dot is important, is it? Well, I think it's the right thing when you put when you put a period, yeah. When you were in charge of a nuclear-powered submarine, how much responsibility did you feel as you first stepped on board? Oh my gosh, I felt a double responsibility because, first of all, you have this mission, which is really important, and you have these people. But my story is, at the last minute, I was shifted to another submarine which I didn't know because it was a different kind of submarine that I'd spent 12 months training for. So it, it, I had this trepidation about how my do tell people what to do training would work. But of course, I had to keep that a secret and uh, not reveal any vulnerabilities. I mean, submarine commanders can't appear vulnerable. It was ranked one of, if not the worst in the fleet. And in about a year or two, you turned it around to become the best. How on earth did you do that in synopsis? We changed the words that we used. And you're being absolutely serious when you say 100%. that. 100%. Everyone talks about these lofty, well, it's a culture change. And, and, and to me, these are words that just sort of uh, cloud what really is going on. All we did was change the words that we used to each other. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, we used to have a lot of they. We had officers were they to the enlisted men, and they the enlisted men were they to the officers and the different departments, engineering officers. No, no, they ordered the wrong part. We didn't order the wrong part. And I just got fed up one day, and I said, you know what? I'm tired of hearing this they. Well, you can refer to the Pentagon as they, but on board the submarine, we're going to be we. And people would come up and say, well, the... 
we ordered the wrong part and I would just laugh and they would walk away. There's no blame. Now, here's the interesting thing. Six months later, it felt like we. It felt like we. We act our way to new thinking. By practicing the words, our brains change. Here's another example. We, they would come up to me all day long saying, uh, what do you want me to do? Or request permission. That was sort of the stock phrase, request permission to submerge the ship, start the reactor, load a torpedo, which means I have to order it. In a permission-based environment, if, if the leader doesn't say yes, the answer is no. So if the leader, if we're waiting for a response, the answer is no, we're waiting. I said, you know what, just do this. Tell me you what you intend to do, and I'll stop you if I don't like it. And that changed everything because now the motivation is coming from the team. They're saying, hey, here's what I intend to do. Here's why. Here's why I think it's the right thing to do. And I could ask questions. But they would then, they would say things like, hey, I, I intend to submerge the ship in an hour. And now, normally this was face-to-face, -face, so it would be unusual for me not to answer. But imagine in a business environment, you send an email. I'm going to change tomorrow afternoon. I'm meeting with a client. I'm going to change the way. I'm going to change the pricing for this one particular. I intend to change the pricing. Your boss is too busy. They don't read it. They're not sure. It's going to happen. It doesn't hold the organization back. And if you know that when you say that, it's going to happen, it imbues you with a tremendous sense of ownership. And this is what's the magic of it. So that's all we did. And I just saw the needle on thinking moving up, 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 up. It's really about thinking. We are such a can-do organization. We all go to work to do our jobs. Why? No one does anything. Well, some people do. Most of us think our jobs. But the language is still stuck in doing. Did you stumble across this approach? Or was it a conscious effort on your part? And how surprised were you that it worked so well? Fear and panic. Fear and panic. I, I showed up. I didn't know the ship. I was transferred to the ship at the very last minute. I didn't know the ship. I gave an order. This is what scared the, the tar out of me. I gave an order which couldn't be done, physically couldn't be done, shift into second gear on an engine that only had one gear. The officer repeated it. Now, he'd been on the sub submarine over two years. I said, did you? How, what? What did? He said, I said, did you know this? He said, yes, sir, I did. Like, what? Why did you order it? because you told me to. And, and that blew my world apart because all my training, all my leadership training was about telling people what to do. Now we don't, we're not so honest as to say that. We say, oh, no, 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 we inspire people. We go, no, 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 we, we motivate them. But it's really about telling other people to do what you want them to do. And so in that environment, when you give a bad order, where, where your brain goes is, I gotta give better orders. But there, that wasn't a solution for me. I, I had to figure out how not to give orders, and that's what this intent. You wrote a book about turning the ship around. You've now written a book called Leadership is Language. I imagine for it to work, for your blueprint to work, you have to really believe in it. You can't just adopt it because you're told to adopt it. You have to believe in it just enough to start trying the language. Don't order other people to change their language. You just change your language. So in other words, if you come to me and say, I think we're ready to launch a product next week. And I say, are you sure? You say, uh, yes. <laughs> well, the fact that I asked the question, are you sure in a binary way, really kind of puts you in a bit of a box. If I say, well, how sure are you? 
How confident are you? How likely is this to succeed? Now you have a lot more space. You can say, yeah, I'm 99% on this one. Yeah, I'm 51%. But those both may come out as, yes, I'm sure. And then I later I blame you. Well, you didn't tell me all the complexity. Yeah, because I, I didn't answer the question. You can only control yourself. So you, we as leaders have to ask questions in a way that makes it easy for the team to speak up. And those things uh, ripple out. But again, we act our way to new thinking. We don't think our way to new action. Perhaps unsurprising that you begin as a a former captain yourself, a former seaman, you begin by using the example of a maritime disaster, yeah. the, the sinking four or five years ago of El Faro. And you use that as a way to help us learn. You, lose, you use the deaths of those poor souls as a way of helping us to ensure that doesn't happen in our lives, whether we're at sea or whether we're in business on a smaller, less fatal scale, less mortal scale. Yeah, it's a gut-wrenching story. So this was in 2015. A, a ship that's 790 feet long, has all the modern equipment, sails straight into a hurricane. How can that happen? Fortunately, the government recovered the black box. Ships like airplanes have these black boxes. The difference is airplane black box might only be a few minutes of recording. On a ship, there's 25 hours of recording. So it's not how we hope people speak. It's not how we train them to speak. It's how, how we want them. It's how they actually speak in these life and death situations. And the language we see, the pattern, it's th the most simply simplest way to describe is it's industrial age language. It's based on the industri industrial age model where one group of people are the deciders, and we call them leaders and white collar or management or whatever. And then another group of people are the doers and they're blue collar workers or union. And we pay them different. So we pay them salary or we pay them hourly. And they all look the same. So we have to put different uniforms on them so we can identify, oh, oh, I see. You're in the doing tribe, not the thinking tribe. So, you know, make sure I don't catch you out <laughs> doing any thinking. And the structure is terrible today. What we need today is to let the doers be the deciders. And when you have the other language pattern, and there's six, I think there's six basic plays that, that, that we've been programmed, and that's not too strong a word. We just do them automatically. If I come to you, let's go back to the software. Now you come to me and say, you know what? I'm not sure about the software release next week. What I say is, really? Why? Uh, which sends a signal, now you got to justify that. Or, come on, we've talked about this. Or, can't you guys do your, something like that. We provoke, we provoke we prod, we respond, reply, react. One thing I rarely see is curiosity. Oh, Matt, tell me about that. What, like, what are you seeing? That's be curious before being compelling. Hierarchy is a dangerous thing. You're not an anarchist, but you do subvert maybe too strong a word, but to some extent you undermine traditional hierarchies in this book and you would use examples not just of El Faro, but also of airline pilots yeah. and the way that captains speak to their assistants, to their co-pilots, and the way that co-pilots speak to their captains and all sorts of difficult and potentially fatal things arise from these hierarchies. Tell us how you are trying to change those. Steep hierarchy is a problem. Uh, I, I liken hierarchy to a river. You're canoeing on a river. If it's really steep, you have rapids, you get upended. 
But flat is also not good. Flat is stagnant. What you want is gently flowing river. We know there's an airplane, uh, Asiana 214, is coming into San Francisco, beautiful, unlimited visibility. She's coming in from Korea. She's coming in too low. Minutes, minutes, too low. It, it's the, there's lights that these pilots look at, and the lights are showing clearly too low. And when you look at that tape, there are these long periods of silence. And then afterwards, when the, uh, the pilots lived, three people died, but the pilots lived in, in this case. And, and they're asking the pilot, and there's this sort of, high, well, I thought the other guy was going to tell me to go around. Why didn't you go around? Because he, he asks. Uh, there's this indication of, should I go around? But the go around's too late. The plane's now 75 feet off the ground, and by the time they gun the engines, it's too late. The, plane, the tail hits the seawall. And we know from studies of airline pilots that one of the key reasons junior people don't speak up is because of the hierarchy. And so as a leader, what you want to do is flatten the hierarchy. Uh, we have all kinds of trappings to signal hierarchy. Uh, pay scale, carpet thickness, office space, proximity of my parking spot. And, though, and then we say, oh, but no one told me. The CEO feigns Gee, I didn't know these people were cheating on the diesel thing. Yeah, because you did all this stuff to elevate yourself for the deliberate purpose of isolating yourself and, and, and feeling more important. Therefore, of course you can't. But oh, by the way, that's what you're responsible for. It makes me angry. So how do you change that, really? If you're the senior person, first of all, there's all higher. You don't get rid of, you can't get rid of hierarchy. Denying hierarchy is also bad because then it's because there is mammals have hierarchy if you're the senior person in a relationship you will probably not feel the hierarchy going below you uh, but you want to level the hierarchy sit next to the person walk side by side don't be across you don't need to reinforce well i've been here a long time or i've got more experience you don't need to tap into that everybody knows that you say hey your fresh eyes you may have the new ideas your fresh eyes are valuable here uh, things like that. If you're the if you're the junior person, it, be careful. Junior people trying to flatten the hierarchy up, or just walk into your boss's office without knocking. Yeah, that's be careful about that. You're, that's viewed as uppity, and and I'd be careful. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Tell us the difference between red work, as you describe it, and blue work. These are important catchphrases. Yeah. So I wanted to come up with terms that. Uh, made it easy to identify whether we were in reduced variability mode. This is precision mode. This is doing focus, run a procedure, run an operation, uh, submerge the submarine, run the reactor versus thinking mode. Should we start the reactor? Should we load a torpedo? What kind of, when, which team are we going to use? And the key difference is doing benefits from reducing variability. It's focused, precision work. And I want to put all my cognitive effort into that. I don't want to reserve a, a cognitive effort for monitoring whether I'm doing the right work. And then when we're thinking, I want to have a very expansive approach. I want to, I want to cast my eyes way left and way right, get all the ideas, all the outliers, the diverse and dissenting opinions. I want to make it easy for them to come out. But the problem is, if we don't have words to distinguish, okay, we're in red work, we're in doing focus work, no, now we're in blue work, cast your eyes wide then we don't really know and we're sort of are halfway in between. So we're sort of focused, 
or we're sort of broadly expansive, but we're neat, not good at either. And this is what we see in a lot of organizations. I'm curious how we change cultures, though, because some of the patterns of behavior that you are critical of are so deeply ingrained, they're very deeply embedded. I think, for example, of air stewards yeah. who are or flight attendants who are trained to raise the alarm if something goes wrong. But in practice, they don't always do that because they feel the hierarchy. So the training is in place, but it's not being implemented because of the way people are actually experiencing their job and experiencing how others conduct their roles. So how do we go beyond those failures if the training in and of itself isn't working? The, the problem is, and this goes back to the book, leadership is language. It's a language. So leadership training looks like this. Oh, go to a three-day course on ABC. If I said you need to run your company in English and German in two years, you wouldn't go to a three-day course in German and then say, oh, done and dusted. We would do a little bit every day. We do a one word a day. We label things in the lunchroom. We tap native German speakers. It, we would practice a little. It's one word at a time, day by day by day. The problem is the leadership training, we're A, training the wrong things in a lot of cases, but B, the, the way we're doing it is wrong. We're training it like it's history class. Leadership is a it's it's. Just exactly like learning a foreign language. It requires for all this to work, I think, a certain agility and management as well, doesn't it? The, that's exactly it. We need to be agile to move from doing, we need to exit doing and go to thinking when we need, but we also need to be easy to exit thinking and go to doing. So when we're stuck in thinking, we use phrases like analysis paralysis or you know, we're running in circles or you're going to make another PowerPoint brief rather than actually doing anything. And when the world is deterministic, if you're going to say, OK, let's plan some maintenance on the nuclear reactor, everything is predictable. It's all a bunch of equations. And we can say, if I turn this valve this far this way, I can predict what's going to happen. But the rest of the world in business, how humans are going to react, how the enemy is going to react, that is, you don't know. So what you have to do is make a hypothesis and then make a commitment to do a short piece. But we always advise people to have an expiration date on their decisions because then it's, it's easy to get into the doing. Hey, well, let's try it for three months and see what, see what we learn. A lot of people, a lot of businesses presumably are goals-driven, goals-orientated, but you encourage a focus not so much on the destination yeah. But on the journey, right? Explain that for us. Uh, so there's a show in America called The Biggest Loser. And it's this horrendous show where you follow these overweight people for like 13 weeks and they go to special camp and they sweat and starve themselves. And every week there's a weigh in. And, and at the end, there's a big confetti ceremony. And when uh, a couple of psychologists followed up on the people from the previous uh, a couple years previously, everyone but one had gained weight and 80% of them, uh, a big number, I'm not sure if it's 80%, but a big number actually weighed more than they did before. Why? Because we're focusing on the goal, not the behaviors that led us there. Everything's on this big ceremony and we see businesses do this too. We don't cherish 
the work and the environment because now the person goes back to the regular life they're not in a special camp they're not being looked at they don't have the spotlight and they just all those old patterns the old habits never change it wasn't long enough to change habits so since the habits didn't change of course their ways is not going to just go back to where it was so we need to change habits and part of that comes from the leaders when someone comes with you and you have something to celebrate do celebrate it but invite them to tell the story because now you're going to understand the behaviors that got them there and you're going to give them space to tell their story. There's a role for democracy in all this, isn't there? You've talked about curiosity of leadership. You've talked about, I think, humility or, or words to that effect. You also write about voting and, and voting, I think, to start with rather than afterwards. Explain that to us and, and just how democratic these processes need to be for, for, for business teams to work properly because other phrases that you you come to are team thinking we think as a team yeah so again uh let's say you you're having a final meeting to decide whether to you're the senior executives at boeing and you've got this new 737 max and we're gonna have a meeting we're gonna launch the product or not and i I don't have the transcripts from the meeting, but I'm hypothesizing based on how we normally see these meetings. People discuss it and then we vote. Okay, so we're good. Sure here. Everyone's got a chance to speak up. The problem is as soon as the discussion starts, well, first of all, everyone knows that the CEO and senior leadership, like this is their thing. This is a big thing. Airbus has got ahead of us. We need to catch up, blah, blah, blah. So we already know that. And then the discussion adds weight to that. So if you're the person who says, yeah, no, I don't think this is a good idea, or I have serious reservations, you're less and less likely to speak up. Instead, what you want to do is say, okay, everyone, before we contaminate you with any further discussion, write down on a card, 1 to 99, how strongly you support doing this. Now, if it's, if it's a safe place, then you just say, write it down, everyone throw their card in the middle, and we flip them over. If it's not so safe, maybe a bigger group or a new group, or we're worried about that, really important, then you want to make it anonymous. And then you look for the outliers, the highest and the lowest numbers. And if there's a whole bunch at 99, but not so many at one, always go to the ones first, or the, the fewer, the minority first, and say, okay, let's hear from the ones. Like, what are you seeing? Rather than suppressing those voices, we need to encourage them. Now, you're still going to have to make a binary decision at the end, but the inputs are complicated. There's too much of a rush. People are cognitively lazy, and so there's too much of a rush to reduce uncertainty. So we just rush into it. We, you know, we even use the word, we're going to build consensus. That we, you know, I'm going to get everyone on board. Great. Well, you just tell us all what to do. Um, and then when, if, if it goes wrong, uh, don't blame us. I'm interested in the role that emotion plays in making decisions because intuitively, or maybe through experience, I'd assume that we want to try and take emotion out of our decision making, but you think that there's a real role for it. It's not what I think, it's what science shows. And plus, you in your gut, you intuitively know this. You go to buy a house, who am I going to marry? What, you're going to look at a spreadsheet? That's going to tell you the answer? No. So we, like we, this is not anything we don't know. The idea of removing all humanity from workplace is because in the, in the industrial age, I needed to coerce you to do your job. So you, knowing you as a human being got in the way. So uh, interesting book by a guy named Dr. Damasio, Descartes' Error. And uh, Damasio was a neurosurgeon, and he had a patient who had a brain tumor, and they took out the brain tumor, and, and the patient lived. It was successful, but 
two things happened. Number one, he was very flat emotionally. And he couldn't make decisions. He would flit around. He, 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 would, he would persist on a chore long after he should have quit. He, he wouldn't spend long enough on a chore. Uh, it, it was just like he was a, a toddler in terms of his decision-making ability. And it's because the decision-making, this is simplistic, but the, our decision-making wiring passes through the emotional part of our brain physically. That's why this tumor, when it was removed, it had damaged the tissue in the brain, which affected both of those. It's the same part of the brain. It, it, this is hard for me to talk about because I'm the last one to say, when you run a nuclear submarine, just go on a gut feel. So when it comes to things like the laws of physics, you need to know your stuff. But lots of times at the end of the day, you, you know your stuff. You're going to make your best prediction for the future. This product will sell in the marketplace or it won't. And you make your best prediction. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to rely on your gut and the guts of the people around you. The problem is in unhealthy workplaces where we leave our humanity at the door, those people are suppressing their gut feeling. You're not hearing it. You, you might think you are, but you're not. And therefore, you're making a decision on half information. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As we've heard, you are against the idea of a very controlling environment, a very top-down environment. But something that you do want us to control is the clock. Tell us how controlling the clock is important if we're not going to be unduly influenced by stress. The problem in the industrial age, look, all industrial age organizations were designed to obey the clock. It's Imagine the assembly line, the parts... Uh, r rushing past you and you having to quickly um, do your whatever you're going to do with your part while it's in front of you on, on your part of the assembly line. It's about production per unit time. That's why we pay people by the hour. That's why we have the words clockwork and uh, we clock in and we clock out. The problem is in those conditions, our prefrontal cortices are disabled. I can't say Here's a complex calculus problem for you to solve. You have 30 seconds and then I play Jeopardy music. It's not gonna really work for you. It might work if I say, I need you to run 100 meters because it's a simple physical task. But for complex tasks requiring our prefrontal cortex, it's not gonna work. So leaders have to relieve that pressure and they say timeout, pencils down, heads up, whatever it is for your team. Now the team, will want to keep going because, oh, it feels so good. It just gets stuff done. Oh, we're so, we're so good at renting DVDs. Let's keep renting DVDs forever. Or we're so good at whatever it is that we're doing. Let's keep doing it forever. We're so, Thomas Cook, we're so good at this travel thing. Like, let's keep doing it forever. In the meantime, the world's changed, but we never raise our head and notice. You use lots of real life examples, some of them very colorful to illustrate your points and no better illustration of the importance of controlling the clock, perhaps, than what happened at the Oscars in 2017. 
I, I, I love this example. I'm going to use it tonight with the uh, group. As soon as I read it, I went to YouTube to look at it. Did the you clip. look at yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's at it. agonizing to it's see. It's awful. You can't believe yeah. it. So, so here's what happens War, two famous actors are here to announce the last award, the best picture. They have the wrong envelope. They open it up. Warren Beatty looks in. You can, his face gets contorted. He's double checking it. He doesn't want to do it. People but think then, he's joking. Yeah. But then he goes on with, then he had, there's this look of resignation. He goes on with the show. It's like, why? It, now, I don't use this because it's so, it's, 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 it's trivial. Nothing happens. No one dies. Well, pretty upsetting for the team that thought that they won and didn't win. Yeah, there's an, a, a, a bit of emotional trauma. But look, n compared to some of these other yes, things, no one died. Death, no. no one died. No one's shooting torpedoes. No one killed the wrong people. No planes crashed. But uh, the fact that we have this video of it makes it such a great example. But you can see it playing out. He feels the sense of the clock. It's live TV. And his 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 prefrontal cortex is disabled and his reptile brain's in charge at that point. It's not because he's a bad person. It's because he's a person. He's a human. He's wired like a mammal. All of us, your reptile brain, what's it interested in? Interested in? Yourself. Exactly. Preservation, self-preservation. Oh, and one of the keys to self-preservation, one of the things that we want to preserve ourselves to the greatest extent about is embarrassment. It's weird, right? The number of people who might not put their hands up in a th in a full theatre yeah. if they think there might be a bomb there yeah. just because they're embarrassed to stop the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah heaven, heaven forbid I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so they, They've got to change the language instead yeah. of calling it wrong, right? Right. Well, so that's the first thing. So, so go on. So that's what groups say. So we say, well, why do we call it wrong? Well, what are you worried about? Oh, well, he raises his hand. We check out the package. It's not a bomb. Oh, sorry for the mess up. Oh, okay. Yeah, you could have saved everyone's life. But like, so the question, so the question I asked the group is, let's assume there was a bomb. Someone under, someone has seen a package that they suspect might be a bomb under a seat. Or they see a, a, they look at a card that they think might be the wrong winner of the best picture at the Oscars. Right. How sure do you want them to be that it's a bomb before they raise their hand? And most people will say, I don't need you to be really sure. This lecture by Marquet isn't that important. <laughs> like one, all I need, if you're, you have a 1% doubt that that's a bomb. Okay, so that means if it's a 1% chance, that means there are going to be times when it turns out it's not a bomb. There have to be times. So... This could lead, of course, to take into extremity to a huge anxiety if we overdo it. But anyway... Right. I mean, I mean, I'm, we, slightly, we, I'm slightly worried, David, that the door handle, if someone opens the door behind you, might smash you in the back of the head. I've been analysing this while I've been listening to you for the last 30 minutes. Are you worried for me? A little bit worried. I think it's okay. Anyway. Yeah, I... So... How sure do you have to be? How sure do you have? It depends on the thing. And, and people aren't nuanced about that. Now, I think... For the, if it's not that important of a thing, fine, let's just do it and see what happens. I mean, what's the big deal? But... If you're, if you're about to shoot a torpedo at the enemy, and then at the last minute someone thinks, maybe that's actually not the enemy, maybe the enemy's over here and they're camouflaging themselves like a cruise ship, or maybe that's actually a cruise ship. So you're gonna kill the wrong people. I don't need the sailor to be that sure. I, and so we needed to work hard to create an environment so that people, uh, example after example. I mean, an oil spill, I think, it sort of fits into this yeah. into this bracket as well. 
Yeah, in NASA, we you you see the space shuttle launch, and, and in this case, to their credit, the engineers were speaking up. They were saying, so this is the eight back in '86 when the launch happened in the cold oil rings in in uh, Florida. They had there again. It was obey the clock uh, because. Reagan was going to give a State of the Union speech where he's going to talk about the space shuttle. And they're going to do 12 launches that year, one every month. And they're coming to the end of January. So we're almost about to miss the first one. So this is, we got to get it done. So the engineers are saying we're out of, we're, we're, the weather is colder than the testing has been validated for. And there are these transcripts of them talking to executives who say things like, when do you want me to launch? June? I mean, <laughs> what? So so the what we're doing, so this is the coerce. This is, a, they're obeying the clock. Come on, go, go, go. And so when your team slows down their pauses, the play that we all do as leaders is, oh, I'm going to motivate them. I'm going to inspire them. I'm going to keep them going. I'm going to kick them in the butt, and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to press the gas pedal. But once you do that, you've contaminated yourself. You're the decision maker. Who's the decision evaluator? These are two different roles in an organization. If you don't separate them, then no one is evaluating, no one is dispassionately evaluating the decision, and then you become susceptible to what we call escalation of commitment. When it becomes apparent that that decision is bad, what do you do? Say, oh yeah, yeah, no, I was wrong. No, you double down. Because you've contaminated yourself. So if you're the senior person in the organization, Better not be making decisions, but or every decision you make, just know you've contaminated yourself and you're no longer dispassionate about it. And you think actually that played an important tragic role in the sinking of Alfaro. There was a doubling down yeah. on the part of the captain. Am yeah. I right? Yeah, it, it, it's gut wrenching reading because there are two. Uh, it's not like they didn't know. There are two points where two officers. Now we're talking about experienced professional mariners have been promoted because of this, their skill and their leadership abilities. And they come up to a point, they're coming down the Bahamas, they're on the Atlantic side where the storm is. They're getting buffeted, they're being tossed. And there's a channel that they could cut through. And they call the captain, the captain's in a stateroom, he's sleeping, they wake him up. We hear the one side, the bridge side, not the captain's side. And it's, 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 vague it's deferential it's full of um well i could um check it a little bit closer i mean this is a storm that would stretch from london to edinburgh and beyond it's the strongest hurricane to hit the bahamas in 100 years we don't need to be that precise where the eye is and they're trying to say we need to turn to save our lives but everything is stacked against them and they don't, and they perish. What do you mean when you say commitment, not compliance? Here's how we design organizations in the industrial age. Because we've separated deciding from doing. My, if I'm a decider, my job is to coerce you into doing what I want you to do. And your job is to comply with what I would just comply. When we can change it, so now what we have is collaboration. Nine times out of ten, people say they're collaborating. It's still coercion in disguise. Hey, I think I think we should launch the product. What do you think? Uh, I guess so. Hey, we collaborated, right? Uh huh. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> from collaboration, from true collaboration comes commitment. The key is commitment comes from within. It's an internal motivator. So we get 
we get discretionary effort. Power from within is always more powerful than power that's imposed on you. Here's a very simple example in self-talk. Let's say you want to stop eating dessert. You've been a big dessert eater up to this point in your life, but now you're getting older. Dessert's not so good for you. You could say, I can't eat dessert or I don't eat dessert. Now, it turns out at the end of the day, when you've got resource depletion and you're tired, the people who say to themselves, I don't eat dessert, don't eat dessert. This is sort of rewiring the brain, isn't it? Yes. Because, because don't eat dessert means I'm not the kind of person who eats dessert versus can't. It's like impose imposed on me from some external force. Uh, similarly, I've read an example in the past, I think, where if you try to lose weight from your face, as I often like to try to do, you might, <laughs> you might say, instead of, instead of saying, I need to lose my double chin, you, you, say, you say, I want to win back my jawline or whatever. So you're thinking positively, which that's, is a motivator, yeah, right? Yeah, that's another thing. And the motivator, oh. motivation in language. Exactly. You say what you want, not what you're trying to avoid. You smile and laugh quite a bit through this podcast, which I, I, I may just be because you're a happy chap. But I suspect it's also because you think that this is kind of obvious and we should all be buying into it. You, you smile at the fact that we can, not at the tragedies, obviously, that, but we can get things so wrong when we, it's so easy to get it right. I don't, I don't know why I'm smiling so much. I, I, I am, I'm optimistic about humanity. I'm just... <sighs> Listen, everyone, it, you're in charge of your scripts in your life. I, I feel like so many of us go around and we just say phrases and sentences. We, we end a discussion. We say, does that make sense? You know, it's just, it, it's mindless. It, and that might be the right thing to say every once in a while. But generally, I'd rather you said, what am I missing? I mean, make it easy for people to challenge you. And I just uh, half the reason I'm laughing is because this is a, this is a self help book for we, for me, because I would find myself I say why did I darn it why did I ask it that way and I would feel myself someone comes up to me at the end of a keynote and says hey can I give you some feedback I want to punch him in the face <laughs> like no you can't where were you where were, how many speeches have you given so but then usually I can control that. And I, I invoke a get better attitude and I, oh yeah, tell me more. But I was like, why am I pro, why is that my first instinct? Why am I so, uh, so broken? And I, I. This is the Bible against yes men, isn't it? This is the, this yeah. is what all leaders, <laughs> presidents, prime ministers should read to stop them from being surrounded by people who just, you know, in an echo chamber type way that leads to groupthink and so forth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, now, if I give I give a CEO a quiz, hey, should you start a meeting by stating your opinion? And they'll say, no, 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 I invite other people. But then I put them in a, in a workshop and I say, okay, you got four tables here. Uh, here's a question. How many countries in Africa? You have 60 seconds and I want to see who gets it right. So what have I, what have I done? 60 seconds, obey the clock, time pressure. So all that thinking is gone. They're now in animalistic mode. And I put them in competition mode. So it's prove and perform. Not, and sure enough, blurt, there it comes. 82. 
And then say, well, no, 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 there's 81. No, 83. No, 80. Like, especially if the CEO said it. And then pretty soon the table goes 82. And then the next table, 80. And then the virus spreads. And then I say, oh, did you guys collaborate? Oh, 100%. <laughs> well, who was the first person to speak? It was, it was the CEO. So when she says 82, we all line up behind her. The person who thinks it's five might say, well, maybe it's 60. But <laughs> you lost them. So when in, it's not about how I think I want to be, it's how I actually behave. So this leads me then to perhaps my penultimate question, which is given how, as we've already discussed, the best training or certainly established training doesn't always work. Yeah. How, how do you suggest that the, the leaders of today and the, and the future leaders, the leaders of tomorrow who read your book or listen to your talks or listen to this podcast actually turn their ways of being around? How, how do you make it lift off the page and become a reality because it is tricky isn't it when you read a sort of self-help or self-improvement yeah. book to, to for it not just gently to filter away yeah. the following day how do we make it become a reality all right go to the sports store buy those yellow referee cards pick one thing like i will uh i will ask disconfirming questions at the end of my session so if you hear me and then you say to your team Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I'm trying to get better. I want to make it easier for you. So you say why you're doing it. And you say, if I, if I sum up or I say, we good, you got the tools you need, you're all set, right? Um, any kind of self-affirming question like that, I want you to yellow card me. And you write that down on the card and you hand it to them. And, they'll, and then you say, does that make sense? And they'll be like, sit there, dumb. And like, no, raise your cards. And they... <laughs> You have to you have to give them a chance to raise their card and make it feel because everybody's like, no, no, we don't want to call you out. He's like, no, 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 you're helping me because I don't realize that I'm doing it. You can re or record yourself uh, at running a meeting or interacting with your team and then play it back. Oh, it's the most cringeworthy thing. You still mess up from time to time. Oh my gosh, every day. Trust me, I get home at the end of the day. You you'll see me. I'm about to do do a keynote. I guarantee you I will violate at least one of my rules. Final question. There's lots that we've missed. Is there anything particular that you would like to punch out that we haven't covered? I just want to reiterate, you can only control yourself. Saying, oh, well, you need to speak up. You need to this. You need to that. You need to be more assertive. That's that's uh, cognitive laziness. But this is also true. It's a very important point, I think. This is also true of our personal relationships, of our of our marriages, of being with our boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever. We could, Often people are tempted to try and change or control the other person. You cannot do any of that. All you can do is control yourself. It, yeah, and... And hashtag be better. That's going to be my hashtag tonight. And the way you get better is you use this yellow card and take the 30-day feedback uh, uh, test. For 30 days, I want you to ask. Don't give feedback, okay? That's just permission to be a jerk. Invite feedback. Hey, how was I, how was I ordering coffee? Start easy. Start easy on yourself. Uh, how are these shoes? That's maybe not... Anyway, how was I running the meeting? And work up so you, how, how, hey, what's one thing I can do better as a son, as a father, as a husband, as a spouse, as a partner, as a friend? Uh, we, let's be better. But you need to inv invite, you need, to, you need help. And it, yeah, it's scary, but it's so, it's so much better. And then you find out it's not scary. 
Well, David Mulcahy, thank you very much indeed. Cheers, man. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred L. David Marquet and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. For more lessons in leadership and masterclasses taught by some of the most accomplished business thinkers and entrepreneurs around, visit us at howtoacademy.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>